The internet completely transformed the way we do business, learn, and entertain ourselves. Essentially, we all have tiny computers in the palm of our hands in the form of smartphones. But like many new technologies, it also introduced entirely new criminal threats from cyber stalking to identity theft. And most famously, in some cases, not necessarily a crime, but catfishing. And in some instances, the nature of online activity has made it possible for violent predators to both to expand and to conceal their activities. And one of the earliest cases of this was a man named John Edward Robinson, whose devious but prolific use of chat rooms, digital fraud, and catfishing earned him the label of the internet's first serial killer. Robinson's rampant theft and murder spree spanned several decades and the exact number of his victims remains unknown. The internet is a powerful tool that can be used for both good and evil. Robinson used it to deceive, exploit, and destroy vulnerable people. You are now listening to Murder V Wrote. I'm your host, V. John Edward Robinson was born on December 27, 1943, in Cicero, Illinois, the third of five children to Henry and Alberta Robinson, an, abu an abusive alcoholic father and a strict disciplinary mother. Obviously, with an alcoholic parent and a strict parent, nothing can come of that. But early in his life, he saw, showed signs of... Um, of sociopathy as well as um, personality disorders. Um, he would steal money from his mom and dad and his siblings and he would also have these delusions of grandeur and lie about his accomplishments to his classmates and his family members. One thing that he did actually accomplish though is that in 1957, Robinson became an Eagle Scout and traveled to London with a group of scouts and performed before Queen Elizabeth II. And afterwards backstage, his claim to fame at that point was that he received a kiss from actress and singer Judy Garland. Robinson enrolled at Quigley Preparatory Seminary, Seminary in Chicago, which is a private boys' school for aspiring priests, but dropped out after one year due to disciplinary issues. And as this episode goes on, you'll see what those disciplinary issues probably were. School records showed that he was a poor and failing student who frequently got into fights with classmates and spent much of the time at school in detention. This is very common when we see children that come from the backgrounds that we discuss a lot on this show. Again, I am not a licensed psychologist. I don't purport myself to be. I cannot diagnose anybody. I'm just going on what public records say about the people that we cover here. But I do do research for the show, so I will talk from a place of my research. And again, always, if I have misspoken or you think that you can add insight, I'm always willing to hear that and learn. But back to the story. 
So with John Robinson and the idea of the sociopathy, just a lot of lying about things that are not necessarily necessary to lie about, right? So just what we would just kind of call a habitual liar, but also what we see from people who have alcoholic parents um, or strict disciplinarian parents. And for him, a combination of both. You have one parent who is abusive and, and not able to function as a real parent because they're in the throes of alcoholism and another parent who's overcompensating and being very strict and biblical to counteract the fact that they have what they would consider a another wayward person in the equation and john of course rebelled against the strict disciplinarian and that's where a lot of the lying and being secretive and the other things come from as well as getting into fights at school and poor school performances all circles back to those formative years of our lives when we are learning about the world but most importantly need our parents to guide us so when your parents are not great at parenting this can lead to the kind of outcomes that we see with John Robinson in 1961 after he had graduated or dropped out of the seminary but graduated from high school he enrolled at Morton Junior College in Cicero to become a a medical radio radiographer but dropped out after two years oh I think this is probably like an x-ray technician of some sort but what you would call that in 1961 so he did that for about two years and then dropped out um in 1964 he moved to Kansas City and hoped that maybe his luck would change and he would find his footing um and this is where he married Nancy Jo Lynch who gave birth birth to their first child John Jr. in 1965 followed by a daughter Kimberly in 1967 and then twins Christopher and Christine in 1971. In 1969 Robinson was arrested in Kansas City for embezzling $33,000 from the medical practice of Dr. Wallace Graham where he worked as a radiographer using forged credentials because remember he did not graduate. He was in the school for two years and then dropped out. So this lie was not as big as some of the other ones we'll see, but constantly what will be the theme throughout John Robinson's life is that he will take very small things or things that he may have some experience in and then embellish and create this very big, robust lie around them, which granted, is this one in the grand scheme of things such a horrible lie? Not really, but yes. If you spend two years as a radiographer, I don't know how long it takes you to get that degree. Maybe it's four years, maybe it's three. I don't know. So reasonably speaking, he may have had enough knowledge to pass himself off in an interview and with patients as someone who knew what was happening. And back then, they weren't as strict about checking your credentials and, and verifying that you went where you said you went some places yes other places no which is why it has been so easy for serial killers of that time to kind of be chameleons of sort get new jobs go different places say they're people that they aren't because people aren't really checking so john robinson goes to work at this at this doctor's office with dr graham and he's using these forged, creden forged credentials and manages to embellish um to embezzle this money so for this, he only gets three years of probation. The following year, he violated this probation by moving from Kansas City to Chicago without his probation officer's permission. 
And it's here that he got a job as an insurance salesman at the R.B. Jones Company. And in 1971, he was arrested again for embezzling funds and was ordered back to Kansas City where his probation was extended. At this point, he has not served any jail time for this embezzlement. In 1975, this probation was extended again after he was arrested on charge of securities fraud and mail fraud in connection with a phony medical consulting company that he had formed. So John was busy during this period. And while he was committing all of these frauds, he also had time to become a scoutmaster, a baseball coach, and a Sunday school teacher. And in 1977, he was named to the board of directors of a local charitable organization where he forged letters from its executive director to the mayor of Kansas City and to the mayor of the civic leaders, naming him as the organization's quote-unquote man of the year. Under that guise, he hosted an awards luncheon in his own honor. After completing his probation in 1979, Robinson was arrested again for embezzlement and check forgery, and this time, finally, he served 60 days in jail in 1982. And after his release, he formed a bogus hydroponics business and stole $25,000 from a friend um, to whom he promised a fast investment return so the friend could pay for his dying wife's medical care. Obviously, this fast return did not come to fruition and he took their twenty-five grand and dipped, which sucks. Another thing about the award for Man of the Year he tricked the state senator, Mary Grant, into presenting him with a plaque at this luncheon. And the Kansas City Star ran a story about the luncheon, and the paper received numerous protests about it being a false story. So many so that Mac Edwards, a reporter at that time at the Kansas City Star, was sent to investigate the claims. And embarrassed, the Star had to run another story exposing Robinson's criminal history and his guilt in the embezzlement charge. In December 30 of 1980, Robinson was fired from another job where he was an employee relation manager at Guy's Food in Liberty, Missouri. In June, the following year, Robinson was charged with felony theft. He was eventually ordered to pay back $50,000 to Guy's Foods. December 31st, Robinson pleaded guilty to stealing a check worth six grand and facing seven years in jail, Robinson made a deal with the prosecutor and received 60 days in jail with five years of probation. And his jail time was served in 1982, starting in May, and he was out before July. So in the summer of 1984, Robinson began advertising um, for a sales representative for his company, Equi2. And Paula Godfrey, who was a 19-year-old graduate, applied for the job and was successful, with Robinson even promising a trip uh, to San Antonio for training. So excited about the prospects of a, a good secretarial um, executive assistant job straight out of high school, Paula began telling her parents about this job. So September 1st of 1984, Robinson turns up at the Godfrey home to pick up Paula for the San Antonio trip. And this is the last time Paula would be seen by any of her family members. And with no contact from her from his daughter within four days, Bill Godfrey, her father, would fly to San Antonio himself. And there he discovered that Paula hadn't booked into the hotel where she was supposed to be staying. Returning back home, Bill confronted Robinson at his offices and demanded that his daughter contact him within three days. 
After two days, a handwritten letter appeared with a Kansas postmark on it. The letter supposedly written by Paula stated that she was safe. Bill Godfrey was having none of it and dismissed this letter as written by his daughter and took it directly to the police. A second handwritten letter would be posted to the Overland Park Police Department, again reporting, reportedly written by Paula. And this letter again posted in Kansas stated that she was okay, thanking John Robinson for all of his help and also stating that she did not want to see her family again. Again, Paula's family dismissed this letter. However, the police took it to be genuine and removed Paula from the list of missing persons cases they had act. I cannot tell you how enraged I would be if I was going to the police and being very adamant that my daughter was missing and that this person was creating these fake letters and this was absolutely not her handwriting. And I just, I guess at the time, handwriting analysis as a science was still kind of getting off the ground but you would think that maybe they would have asked for some other letters or samples of her handwriting to compare it against I don't know to make sure but also keep in mind that John Robinson was very crafty and had already been I'm sorry convicted Lord I could not think of the word convicted of of all these fraud charges as well as check forgery so he may have seeing something that Paula had written at some point and then was able to forge a, a passable likeness to her own writing. In January of 1985, Robinson was again involved in the disappearance of another woman. Lisa Stasi was a 19-year-old mother of a daughter, Tiffany, who was separated from her husband after a short but violent marriage. She was staying at Hope House, which is a shelter for battered women in Kansas. And her social worker, Kathy Stackpole, met Lisa to give her some good news of a charity organization willing to help her by offering her a job with training and a home rent-free as a part of their program. Lisa went to her sister-in-law's house, the sister's name is Kathy Klingsmith, to await collection by this group. So when the group comes to collect her, or rather a representative from the group comes to collect her, it is none other than John Robinson. He picks up Lisa and her baby Tiffany and their things and drives away. Lisa promises to return soon to collect the remainder of her items. And a few days later, after staying at the Overland Park Roadway Inn, the threesome booked out on January 10th of 1985. And again, Lisa would not be seen by her family again. 15 years later, Tiffany would resurface as the adopted niece of John Robinson. On Friday, January 11th, 1985, Robinson met his daughter, his brother Donald and his wife Helen at the Kansas City International Airport with a baby who, they, who he informed was their newly adopted daughter because their mother had unfortunately committed suicide recently. Donald and Helen were not aware of the true story about baby Tiffany and what had actually become of her mother, Lisa. This part of the story was or this case has always been horrible and, and gut-wrenching to me. It's insane to think that he murdered this 19-year-old woman and then took her child and simply gave the baby to his family members as if he had not murdered this woman at all. On January 13th, Kathy Stackpole, who was Lisa Stassi's social worker, received a type letter purporting to be from Lisa, dated January 10th, stating how grateful she was for their help. 
Lisa's mother-in-law, Betty Stasi, would receive a similar letter, but Betty knew for a fact one thing that John Robinson did not know. Lisa could not type. She would not have had access to a typewriter, nor would she have any knowledge of how to even set it up to be able to type a letter. A few days later, Robinson would make phone calls asking if anyone had heard from Lisa, claiming that she and her daughter had disappeared from the inn. At this time, Robinson's probation officer, Steve Hames, was becoming suspicious of his, his business dealings after hearing rumors of illegal activities and began an investigation into what was going on. Irv Blattner, an assistant and fellow parolee to Robinson, walked into the Secret Service office in Kansas City on March 19th and offered to turn state's witness, or rather government's witness, into Robinson's activities. The previous week, the Secret Service had questioned Robinson about a $741 check which he had been illegally cashed by a friend of Robinson, and the check was meant for a student named James Hargrove. Blattner believed that Robinson was setting him up to be the fall guy. Special Agent John Gerbner asked Blattner about any involvement Robinson had in an organization assisting young women with babies. Blattner would tell the agent of a plan to help pregnant women give birth and then put the babies up for adoption. Blattner had flat out refused to be involved in this idea. At the end of the interview, Blattner would sign a statement giving details of Robinson's illegal activities, and on March 21st at 11.55 a.m., Robinson was arrested. He would later post a $50,000 bond and be released from custody. The FBI were involved in the investigation into Robinson and were in view interviewing women at the outreach program. Agent Levin had gained evidence that a building used by Robinson's Equi2 business was being also used as a brothel. March 26th saw Robinson his, and his attorney, Bruce Hodek, present at the parole violation meeting held at the Missouri State Probation Office. Robinson had to answer to counts of parole violation of forgery for illegal cashing that check and consorting with someone with a criminal record, or Blattner. Robinson denied both charges, claiming it was Blattner who was responsible for the check, and also he was unaware that Blattner was on probation. Steve Haynes was frustrated, obviously so, that it was proving difficult to pin Robinson down with any of the crimes. The FBI continued to keep Robinson's business at Troost Avenue under surveillance, and on June 12th, while Robinson was away, they moved in. In the apartment, they found Teresa Williams, and she thanked, and she thanked them profusely for saving her from Robinson. Teresa then began to relay her story to the agents. Teresa, befriended by Robinson in April of 1985, says that Robinson led her into prostitution. She also agreed to allow Robinson to become her pimp. And as the relationship continued, Robinson began to assault Teresa regularly and soon was able to persuade her into a plot to, flame, to frame Irv Blattner. Robinson instructed Teresa to write a diary with dialogue that he gave her, and this diary was to culminate in her apparent murder by Irv Blattner on June 15th. Robinson told Teresa that she would actually be going to the Bahamas. While the FBI were able to take Teresa away from Robinson, probably saving her life, they did not make any move on Robinson himself. And for three weeks following Teresa's apparent disappearance from Troost Avenue, and with the aid of the FBI, Robinson employed a private investigator 
Charles Lane to search for Teresa. And on July 10th of 1985, she was found. Robinson instructed Charles to monitor the house where she was living to find out the cause of her walking away from their prostitution racket. However, Lane was interviewed by the FBI and Teresa was again moved, this time well away from Robinson. On July 29th of the same year, Robinson returned to the courthouse in Clay County to find that he was guilty of breaking the conditions of his parole on three counts. August 21st, Judge Hutcherson ordered that Robinson's probation be revoked, thereby forcing Robinson to serve the remainder of his seven-year sentence behind bars. An appeal was lodged which allowed Robinson to remain on bail during the appeal process, and in May of 1986, at the appeal hearing, Robinson came away with a satisfactory conclusion. The decision was overturned, and this allowed Robinson once again to stay out of jail on parole. But this didn't last long, because not to worry, we all know John, and if there's one thing he's going to do, it is violate parole, violate probation, or do some hyper-fraud. So, in January of 1986, while bail was pending on his appeal hearing, Robinson was in court defending a charge of felony theft. Of course he was. Robinson's company, Equi2, had been commissioned by Backcare Systems International to market their range of products. The plan included publishing brochures to advertise for the company. Backcare Systems International became suspicious that the requested work was not being carried out. Robinson had forced Irv Blattner to forge invoices, but the trick failed landing Robinson, but the trick failed landing Robinson in court once again. The three-day trial ended on January 30th, 1986, and this resulted in Robinson being found guilty of felony theft to the tune of $3,600. The district attorney for Johnson County, Steve Obermeyer, observed Robinson's criminal past and persuaded the judge to take it into account when sentencing. Smart man. Judge Herbert Walton agreed with the DA and sentenced Robinson to 5 to 14 years in addition to a fine of $5,000. Defense attorneys for John Robinson tried to appeal the decision, but they were denied. Love that for everybody involved. On July 10th of 1986, so about seven months later, Robinson was charged again and this time on four counts of attempted fraud on a business deal with Gerhard QT. Robinson offered Gerhard part ownership on a land agreement to which he paid Robinson $150,000 for the opportunity, which then he later discovered that Robinson had fraudulently modified the sales agreement to read $100,000 and pocketed the remainder. Despite these additional charges, Robinson was still out of custody and continued to run his business. In January of 1987, he employed Catherine Clampett, oh my goodness, so sorry, Catherine Clampett as his secretary. This job required Catherine to travel across the country on business on behalf of Robinson. Catherine's family was mildly suspicious of this opportunity and warned her to be careful, as any family would for a young girl traveling alone um, in spring of 1987, Catherine disappeared and she was declared a missing person on June 15th. Robinson was questioned, but no clear evidence was ever found and the case was dropped. On May 16th of 1987, Robinson gave himself to the Johnson County Jail and the sentence was a minimum of five years. He was soon transferred to the Kansas State Penitentiary in Hutchison as prisoner 45690. 
and during his stay at the facility, Robinson suffered a series of strokes, which resulted in the right side of his face being partially paralyzed. On January 23rd of 1991, Robinson had now served the minimum time at Kansas, and with his good behavior, he was again granted parole. However, Robinson was immediately handed over to the Missouri prison officials to serve the remainder of his original sentence after breaking his parole terms there. And due to his ill health after the series of strokes, Robinson's sentence would be carried out at the Moberly Correctional Facility as, as inmate number 177866. He was soon transferred again, and this time to the Western Missouri Correctional Center in Cameron. He would, he would serve out the remainder of his sentence here before being released in the spring of 1993. Beverly Bonner met John Robinson during his time at the Missouri prison and she was responsible for the library in the facility. Robinson had was made her assistant while he was in prison. The two became friends. She and Robinson had actually met 20 years earlier, having worked at the same company in Kansas City. And once Robinson was released from prison in 1993, he offered Beverly the job running his company, Hydroglow, which sold organic vegetables, and Beverly agreed. Robinson set up a home in Florida, and Beverly divorced her husband, Dr. William Bonner, after he discovered that she had an affair with Robinson while he was incarcerated. So Beverly, the prison librarian, was carrying on an affair with John Robinson while being married to Dr. William Bonner, who at that point in time was the prison's doctor. So after their divorce, um, she moved to Florida to be with Robinson, which he was still married to Nancy Joe um, and still had the four kids, by the way. So after this, Beverly's family, again, never saw her. Her ex-husband would receive the occasional letter from her, typed, of course, with her signature, telling her, telling him that the company was sending her on various assignments around the world, traveling to Australia and across Europe. William never doubted the authenticity of the letters. However, he did think it very odd that in December of 1995, Beverly failed to attend the funeral of their eldest son, Randy. He assumed that she must have been on some important company business and was not available to fly home to come to the funeral. In 1994, Sheila Faith Howell was 46 when she became smitten with Robinson, who she had first encountered on the internet. The other thing, I'm so sorry, I should have, let me go back. Another thing about Beverly that was interesting is that once she moved to Florida with John Robinson, in order for her to get her mail, he convinced her to get a post office box. After her divorce was finalized from Dr. William Bonner, in the settlement of that divorce, she received alimony payments monthly. After a while, nobody heard from Beverly, but the checks were still being cashed. John Robinson was still going to that P.O. box monthly, picking up Beverly's <clears throat> alimony checks and then cashing them as if Beverly was still alive and well and nobody was to know any different until she didn't show up for the funeral but because Beverly had moved and her ex-husband was still getting letters from her detailing the exploits of this fabulous new job she had no one thought to go to the police and identify Beverly as a missing person 
So back to 1994, Sheila, Fee Sheila Faith was 46 and she became spitten with Robinson when she first met him in an internet chat room. She had been depressed since her first husband, John, also John, died in 1991. And Sheila was left to raise her 15-year-old daughter, Debbie, who was disabled on her own. Sheila fell deeply in love with her knight in shining armor, such that he, so much so that she announced to her friends that she and her daughter Debbie were to move with him into his home in Kansas. Her friends were shocked, as I would be, by this very sudden declaration and decision and warned her that it sounded too good to be true. John had absolutely lied and pulled the wool over Sheila's eyes. He had promised to take care of her and Debbie. Debbie, who was suffering from um, cerebral palsy, needed around-the-clock care, needed a care nurse. John told Debbie that he could pay, that, I'm sorry, not Debbie, Sheila. John told Sheila that he could pay for all of these things for Debbie and that he had horses, that she could get some type of filial, she could get horse therapy and there was a special school she could go to that would be better for her and she could get the kind of care that she needed and the kind of education that would be catered to her. All of this sounded like a godsend to Sheila. So she packed it up in the summer of 1994 and she moved. When John, John, when John Robinson arrived at Sheila's door to help them move to Kansas, they were never seen again. Shortly after they left for Kansas, Sheila Faith's brother, William, received the first of many typed letters signed by Sheila telling him what a wonderful time she was having. But William was suspicious and asked the Social Security office to track down his sister and niece via the Social Security checks that they were receiving for Debbie's disability. However, the administrator refused to divulge such information as it was considered private. And in autumn of 1994, the Social Securities Administration received a typed letter signed by Dr. William Bonner informing them that Debbie was now completely disabled and required full-time care. This, in turn, made them increase the checks that, they were that were made payable to Sheila Faith. And if you're keeping track, Dr. William Bonner is the ex-husband of one of his victims, Beverly Bonner, who was a prison doctor and had not ever met Sheila Faith, her daughter Debbie Faith, and would have no idea what disability she had. So at this point, Robinson is also purporting himself to be Dr. William Bonner in order to perpetrate this fraud. At this point, enter Isabella Lewicka, she uh, was born in Poland and she immigrated to America in November of 1993 with her family when she was 15. And at 19, Isabella became involved in the BDS scene where in 1997, she made contact with Robinson over the internet. And with nine months of this, within nine months of this initial contact, Isabella moved away from her family home in Indiana to be near Robinson in Kansas City, where she offered herself to him as a permanent sex slave. And during their time together, Isabella would proudly tell others that Robinson was her husband, whereas he would say that she was his cousin. Isabella often visited Robert Meyer's bookstore in Overland Park, and she had gone to the store on many occasions previously and could be considered a regular there. She and Robert would chat about the books she was purchasing. And on July 18th of 1999, Isabella made one of her visits to the bookstore. This time, she was accompanied by John Robinson, whom she announced as her husband, and he purchased some books for her. 
The pair were about to leave when Isabella mentioned to Robert that she was moving away. This was the last time that Robert ever saw Isabella and her parents would begin to receive the same typed letters from Isabella telling them of her adventures around the world. This is when John Robinson meets Suzette Troughton. She had been experiencing the BDSM scene for several years and particularly in the Gorean practices, becoming the slave to several masters and using the internet to find willing partners. In 1999, Suzette met a man in the internet chat room who went by the name J.R., which is John Robinson, who described himself as a wealthy businessman from Kansas City. And after several months of contact by email, this J.R. made a job offer to Suzette to, Suzette, to nurse his diabetic father while on, the, on an around-the-world trip. Suzette was very tempted by the offer, but she suggested that she spend some time in Kansas meeting both J.R. and his elderly father before making that decision. On October 1999, Suzette and J.R., quote-unquote J.R., met and Robinson managed to persuade some colleagues to pose as various members of his family to entrap Suzette. And at the end of the five days that she was in Kansas, Suzette agreed to the job and on February 14th of 2000, she moved to Kansas to begin her new life. And for the next two weeks, Suzette rented an apartment on Johnson on Robinson's credit card and he would visit regularly explaining that he had some business deals to conclude before she could begin her new job. The pair had regular sex and took photographs of the moments, which Suzette would email to her friend, Crystal Ferguson. The emails between the two friends would continue long after March 1st when Suzette disappeared. The tact of the emails suddenly changed after that date. Suzette no longer talked about past friendships or events in her life. All the correspondences would talk about how good her life is now and how happy she is her, how happy she was with her boss and her new master made her. All the emails were signed Suze, a nickname Suzette never used. Crystal continued to receive emails from Suze and she explained that she, because her new master was treating her so well, she wanted Crystal to experience a relationship similar to hers. Crystal was highly suspicious that this was not her friend sending the emails, and so to expose the author, Crystal decided to play along. A man named JT, who advertised himself as a stern but fair master, soon contacted her. Crystal noticed that the email style was very similar to the emails that she had received from Suze, and hence suspected that they were from the same person. After weeks of playing along with her master, JT, Crystal began receiving phone calls from him, and then a new contact began emailing her. A second male named Tom began emailing, offering to be Crystal's master, but again, she was suspicious. Tom gave Crystal a series of phone numbers which, with which he could be contacted at any time, using a police friend Crystal's had, Crystal had the numbers traced, and each of them led back to, you guessed it, John Robinson. At the end of March, John Robinson called the Troughton home and spoke to Suzette's mother, Carolyn. He complained that her daughter had let him down and that she had run away from him and her job with a man that she had only just met and that he hadn't seen her since. Carolyn's other daughter, Dawn, 
contacted the Overland police to give her to give them the story and found that John Robinson was already under investigation. Oblivious to any investigation into his business, Robin and his many guides, Robinson and his many guises continued with these emails to Crystal, attempting to persuade her to visit him in Kansas. On March 29th, Crystal was contacted by Detective Jack Boyer of the Lenexa Police Department, and he contacted her because of her friendship with Suzette. The detective explained that he was part of a task force investigating the disappearance of her friend. The detective explained that after discussing the case with Crystal, she mentioned the emails that she was receiving from Suze and the new contacts, JT, JR, Tom, and her suspicions about who they were. Detective Boyer agreed with her thoughts and requested Crystal to continue emailing with them, but to pass the copies along to Detective Boyer, and Crystal agreed to do so. Robinson was known to stay at the Extended Stay America Hotel in Kansas, and in March he stayed for a few days with an unnamed woman. And during this stay at the hotel, the woman was only seen once asking for photocopies of a document. Her desk clerk witnessed the document and was horrified to read that it was a slave contract. Kansas law requires that all hotels provide a list of long-stay guests to the police. And the hotel was sure to notify the police as to the document and the owner of it. The visiting detective left instructions to inform the police immediately should Robinson return. In the search for Suzette Trotman, detectives discovered that she and Robinson had stayed at the Guest House Motel in February. Here, forensic tests discovered blood stains in the room they rented, but were unable to determine the source. And back at the Extended Stay America Hotel, an unnamed woman from Dallas booked in. Her stay was paid for by Robinson, who soon joined her in room 120 on April 23rd. The FBI were staking out the hotel, gathering evidence against their suspect. After five days, Robinson ordered his slave back to Dallas to be ready to move to Kansas. Robinson promised to help her with the move, but he never turned up. She tried calling Robinson, but he was not contactable, and he had taken a number of photographs of his slave in various bondage poses, and she wanted them back. Unable to reach Robinson, she called the police. Two officers from Lenexa interviewed the woman, having been contacted by officers in Dallas. After listening to the story, the detectives talked to the FBI, where for the first time they learned of the FBI file on Robinson that included suspicion of prostitution and slavery. On May 19th of 2000, Robinson was again the subject of a complaint from another unnamed slave. Again, Robinson used room 120 at Extended Stay America. She told the detectives that during her stay, Robinson repeatedly overstepped their safe mark and boundaries as with the previous women, he beat her and took several photographs. When she complained, Robinson quickly left. The Lenexa task force, followed by the FBI, interviewed the woman to gain more important information about Robinson. The task force decided that Robinson was becoming too dangerous, and so the decision was made to arrest him. District Attorney Paul Morris approved the arrest warrant, and on June 2nd of 2000, detectives moved in. The charges against Robinson were increased on July 28th when he was charged with the murder of Lisa Stasi, who had appeared in who disappeared in 1985, and the aggravated interference with parental custody in the case of Robinson's quote-unquote niece, who is believed to be Lisa's daughter Tiffany. In late January 2001, Missouri prosecutor Chris Coaster 
backed up the three murder charges with 56 counts of forgery because Robinson was accused of forging the social security checks intended for Sheila and Debbie Faith. Robinson, if found guilty of the forgery charges, could face the 382-month sentence. And despite a last-minute appeal from the from his defense team citing a slow release of prosecution evidence, the trial of John Edward Robinson began on September 16, 2002. And you might be asking yourself, what allowed the police to catch him? Over time, Robinson became increasingly careless and his ability to avoid detection declined. And by 1999, he'd attracted attention of the police and his name frequently frequently came up in these missing missing persons cases. When he was arrested in June 2000 at his farm in Kansas, this was after another woman had filed a sexual battery complaint against him and told police that he had stole her sex toys. It is this theft charge that finally gave investigators the probable cause they needed to obtain the search warrants. And on the farm, uh, on his farm, a task force found the decaying bodies of two women later, later identified as Isabella Lewicka and Suzanne Troutman in two 85-pound chemical drums. Across the state line in Missouri, investigators searched a storage facility where Robinson rented out two garages. They found three similar chemical drums containing corpses subsequently identified as Beverly Bonner, Sheila Faith, and Debbie Faith, her daughter. All five women were killed in the same way by one or more blows to the head with a blunt instrument, most likely a hammer. So in 2002, on October 8th, testimony began. In a radio stunt, t-shirts were being sold with the phrase, roll out the barrels, emblazoned on them. For two weeks and 100 witnesses, DA Paul Morrison presented his case to the jury. Robinson's wife, Nancy, testified that she knew her husband used the alias James Turner when he was having affairs with other women. She also admitted that Robinson was in the BDSM lifestyle and that she was aware of it. The deputy coroner, Donald Pogeman, described how each woman was killed having received those heavy blows to the left, side, left hand side of their skull. Each would be instantly killed, with the exception of Isabella Lewicka. She somehow survived for a short period of time before succumbing to the injury. The defense argued that the prosecution case was entirely based on circumstantial evidence. They admitted that the evidence presented did link Robinson to the five women, but not to their deaths, and hence the case was not proven. Patrick Berrigan, for the defense, pointed out that no other potential suspects were investigated and that Robinson was the sole focus of the police investigation, despite the fact that other unknown persons had ample opportunities to have committed these murders. And these potential suspects were overlooked. On October 28th of 2002, the testimony ended and the jury filed out to begin their deliberations. The following day at 3 p.m., after about 11 hours of discussion, they returned with a guilty verdict on all charges. Robinson gave no reaction to the verdict. I will say that obviously when you have defense attorneys and the evidence is overwhelming, you have to try to find the best way to defend your client to the best of your ability. Um, I don't know that this was necessarily the route to go. Um, I will say obviously anyone who knows me and knows the show, I 
appreciate the hard work that good police officers do, but very often we are talking about marginalized groups of people, especially women and children, or we're talking about sex workers, or we're talking about poor people or brown people or black people. Depending on the time, the police are less reticent to do the work necessary to make sure that these cases get the same coverage as their white counterparts or their rich counterparts or even their male counterparts. So I tend to be very critical of this. And I'm not saying obviously that the police don't do a good job because in this case, they did a fantastic job. Unfortunately, if someone is missing and you are an adult in this country, you can just be missing. But I think it is very interesting that in a lot of these cases, their family members are going to the police and saying, hey, we're getting these letters. We don't, you know, this doesn't make any sense. We don't know why, you know, why this person is not talking to us. I understand that they sent a letter saying they don't want to talk to us again, but they left with this man and now we're getting these typed letters that aren't even written and we don't know what is going on. And I think that that is a difficult place to be in when you are a parent or a loved one and you're frustrated and the police are just simply not trying to assist you or help you in any way and that is difficult and it's like yeah in one of the cases we talked about a woman went missing and her family started receiving typed letters and she couldn't even type and you would think that if you tell the police like she can't type i'm telling you i know this to be a fact she cannot type has never used a typewriter would not know what to do in the time that she has been missing the three seconds i'm absolutely sure she did not learn how to use a typewriter and type and send me letters and the police never looked into it and that is a difficult place to be in when you have begged for someone to pay attention and to listen and it feels like they didn't but i feel like in this case Overall, the FBI and the police did what they needed to do. They put the pieces together when they had them. And unfortunately, and not so much now, you can have a circumstantial case. And again, there's nothing wrong. So I'll stop here and I'll have this mini conversation because we're almost at the end. When you're talking about circumstantial evidence to a crime, that is really supporting evidence. And in our country, up until you know a few years ago it was very difficult to process or to prosecute nobody homicides because the idea here is that if you're saying this person is dead and you don't have a body to prove it what if we say that this person is guilty and then the quote-unquote dead person that you don't have a body for walks into the courtroom or shows up somewhere else after we have convicted this person which i would think if the person they're convicted of killing reappears you should simply let them out of prison but you know that's not how it works um and it would be great if they just didn't go to prison at all right the person is alive so the idea here obviously is that you want bodies but you also have to have a certain standard and burden of proof in order to get a search warrant in order to be able to search these the person's property you just cannot go onto their property and start searching around without any type of probable cause and so the police really did their due diligence in trying to track john robinson and to try to get him on things that would allow them their search warrant and they finally did and they you know i hate to say struck gold but essentially were able to find enough bodies or find the bodies of five of these women so that he could be put behind bars for good 
So this idea of the defense arguing a circumstantial case is a little insane. You have these bodies on his fenced-in property in his storage buildings that nobody has access to with cameras and key codes on these buildings. And you're saying that there could be other possible suspects who just randomly hid five separate bodies on his property in two separate places, not all on one bit of his property. Like I'm digging holes at the corner of the property that I can back my truck up to from a service access road and he doesn't know because he's never there. We're talking about barrels on the property that he put there and in a separate storage unit. So while it is somewhat circumstantial evidence, I, I certainly don't think that it, it's circumstantial in the way that the defense tried to present it. So three days later, the penalty phase for this trial began. And under Kansas state law, the options are simple. You either get life sentence or you get death by lethal injection. And to be sentenced to death, the jury must be unanimous in their decision. So the defense pleaded for a life sentence with using members of the Robinson family to request mercy. Uh, John's wife, Nancy, once again took the stand. And when questioned, she accepted that her husband was guilty because the jury had found him to be guilty. The jury, however, rejected the pleas and announced their decision of death by legal injection. And once again, Robinson stood to hear the verdict and offered no response. He was taken back to a cell and placed on suicide watch until he received his formal sentencing. Meanwhile, his defense attorneys were filing an appeal against the verdict. The appeal was rejected, and on January 21st of 2003, Judge John Anderson III formally gave Robinson the death sentence and a life sentence for the murder of Lisa Stasi, whose body has never been found. And in March of 2003, Robinson agreed to be extradited to Missouri to face three murder charges for those of Beverly Bonner, Sheila Faith, and her daughter, Debbie Faith. And on October 24th of that same year, Robinson pleaded not guilty. And then Judge Joseph Durand set a trial date for March 8th of 2004. By October, uh, Johnson had returned to the court to announce via his lawyers a change in his plea. Because Robinson and his lawyers had negotiated with the prosecution to give a guilty plea for the three Missouri murders. And in exchange for this plea, Robinson received a life sentence. However, as part of the plea, Robinson confessed to two further murders that he was not charged with. These two additional victims were identified as 19-year-old Paula Godfrey, who disappeared from Olathe in 1984, and 27-year-old Catherine, Catherine Clampett, who vanished in 1987. You may be wondering what happened to baby Tiffany in all of this with the family and everything. Um, so basically when John Robinson gave baby Tiffany to his brother and his sister-in-law, they raised her. When she found out about all of this, she did reach out to her biological mom, Lisa Stasi's side of the family. She met her grandmother, um, other aunts and uncles and nieces. Um, she said that, that has been, you know, a surreal experience but they you know have loved her and welcomed her with open arms in addition to that they also filed a lawsuit against um the hope house in which uh, lisa was staying because her social worker and the hope house contracted with john robinson without doing any type of background on who he was or anything and then released her to the care of a complete and utter monster thereby causing the death of her mother and ir Ear surmountable harm to baby Tiffany 
um, they settled for an undisclosed amount and she did actually um, split that money with her biological grandmother, just in case you were wondering. So that part at least has a happy ending, I guess you could say. Um, and my goodness, that is it. That is the story of John Edward Robinson, uh, dubbed the internet's first serial killer or quote unquote, the slave master. Um, I hope you enjoyed this. I'm so sorry that I have kind of been out. It's summer. I've been working a lot. I've also been taking some vacations. I meant to put this out prior to vacation, but I had um, a little bit of a snafu with my recording equipment and was trying to get it edited and did not happen before I had to leave. So, so sorry to leave you hanging with that, but I'm so glad you're back here with me and I'm so glad that we're back in the swing of things. Um, I don't think I have any announcements. We'll be back next week, regularly scheduled on Monday. We'll be covering the mysterious disappearance of Madeline Murray O'Hare. Um, I got that story from a Forensic Files, where, of course, I love Forensic Files, Forensic Files episode that I thought was very interesting. And I think Madeline Murray O'Hare is a very interesting character all on her own, despite the circumstances surrounding her disappearance so it seems all too fitting okay guys um if you want to talk to me about the show or give me um suggestions for episodes you'd like me to cover or if you'd like to be a guest if you'd like to tell me you hate the shit and you don't want me to do it anymore you can do all of those things um you can email the show at murdervpod at gmail.com um, you can also follow the show on Twitter and on Instagram. That is at Murder V-E-E Pod um, on both platforms. Um, and if you want to talk to me personally, the host fee, um, I am also at VJ underscore Burton on both Twitter and Instagram if you'd like to find me there. Again, I thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And go shake it off, cleanse a palate, go touch some grass, have a little sunshine on your face and try not to think about crazy men from Kansas who are putting bodies in barrels and abducting babies. You have been listening to Murder V Wrote and again, I am your host, V. Research for today's episode came from an article that I got um, called Has Madeline Murray O'Hare Met Her Maker by Michael Hall that was published in May of 1999 and another one entitled The Mysterious Disappearance and Grizzly Murder 